You're listening to Lady Radio, the hottest show this side of Dizzo. Greetings and welcome to episode 9 of Lave Radio, the podcast that covers the universe of Elite and the development of the computer game Elite 4, Elite Dangerous. I'm your host, second technician Fozzer Forrester, and joining me in the orange sign wider tonight are the man currently sitting number one on Cardiff City Council's most wanted list, John Stabler. Good evening. Lave Radio's answer to Daft Punk, Alan Stroud. Cheers. And finally, because Commander Thane, Chris Jarvis, is currently still stuck in system with no hydrogen fuel on board, we are honoured to have a special commander with us tonight. EVE Online might have their own CSM, the Council of Stellar Management. Tonight, Lay Radio has its own CSM in the form of Frontier Development's own community support manager, Ashley Barley. Hello. Welcome, guys. Okay, John, why don't you start us off and tell us what an exciting week you've been having this week? Oh, it's it's too much of a long story. <laughs> As Foz has said, I got into trouble with Cardiff Council. We fell out over the use of my public facilities. Well, that just sounds so wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Not in a George Michael kind of way, but um, <laughs> uh, simply I, I run a, a group in Cardiff called Cardiff Skeptics. Uh, we have speakers come once a month, give us a talk. It's usually related to science and, and things like that. And we were planning on having two speakers, John Sweeney of Panorama fame, the guy who lost it in front of the Scientologists, and Professor David Nett, who was the drugs advisor to the previous Labour government and was sacked by Alan Johnson, the Home Secretary. And basically, I had them and I booked the library, the Cardiff Central Library, which can cater for a fair size audience for a speaker. Um, and there was uh, what Cardiff Council have dubbed a misunderstanding, um, <laughs> where it was made clear to me that these speakers were considered to be a bit controversial. And then all of a sudden, I was told that the, the library couldn't host them. So I then just put a tweet out there that was saying that I was disappointed with the library uh, and the reasons why, and it kind of all got picked up by the press. It blew up on Twitter. Uh, a lot of um, quite high-profile skeptics were retweeting it. So the next thing I know, I've got local papers and the BBC uh, Radio Wales phoning me at work. It's been an interesting week. And what's the final outcome? Have the library backed down, or have you taken it elsewhere? So, yeah, it, not only did we get some great free publicity, but um, the Welsh government stepped in and we are now going to be having the talks in the Senedd, which is basically the Welsh Parliament. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a complete win for me. <laughs> that sounds superb. Alan, I described you as Daft Punk. What have you been up to this week? Obviously, I wear my silver onesie all the time with my special helmet which I'm sure that Psycho uh, Cow will be incredibly interested to know. What have I done this week? Marking, mostly. Helping students with their work. That's taken up a lot of sort of the main time. And then um, we've had a little bit of writing time. So, yeah, got on with, uh, with the book. So we've made a bit of a start, which is good. Got about seven chapters in now. So, um, so that's not too bad. I'm not really a fan of word counts at a very early stage because that kind of doesn't really mean anything. But story-wise, bare bones, we're, we're about seven chapters in, which is good. Done a bit more music, obviously helped Chris with Escape Velocity. And while he was away on holiday, I did most of the scoring and lining up. And then he, he managed to find himself a library somewhere near where he was holidaying and uh, get the final upload together and, and sort that out to me and John. And then we got that up during the week. Um, it's been about it. Well, from my side of things, I've had an exciting week because most exciting of all, my Frontier Development mug turned up. Hooray! 
and I've been drinking coffee in it all this week. So that was probably the highlight, followed by another exciting package which arrived in the post, which was the other Kickstarter that I backed, the Pebble Watch. And for those people who weren't aware of the Pebble Watch, it's the watch that uses an e-ink display, like your Kindle or your other e-book readers. And you can customize all the watch faces on it and get various apps and it talks to your phone. So when you get a a call comes in, it will actually show up who's calling you on your wristwatch and stuff like that. So that's been about a year in the waiting. So that's quite exciting. The first thing I did was put an Elite Dangerous logo on there and put a new watch face that uh, shows Frontier Developments Elite Dangerous, which was quite cool. Aside from that, the Conclave went live. That's our other community show. That went live at tail end of, uh, well, beginning of this week. That was well received. Uh, We've got another one of those coming up in the not too distant future. So yeah, all in all, quite, uh, quite a busy week for us. Ashley, outside of Frontier Developments, what have you been up to, sir? Well, uh, I know I just went on holiday, but I've actually just booked another one. Um, <laughs> you just you just got back from Spain, so, haven't you? Yeah, obviously getting paid too much. But, <laughs> well, you yeah, can no, say going, that we can't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and no, I'm going to uh, Croatia in the summer, though. So I'm looking forward to that. Oh, nice. Yeah. Whereabouts in Croatia? Split. Oh. Yeah. I say that as if I know where that is. I don't, but I will <laughs> Google map it a bit later on. I have no idea either. I um, sort of latched on to some other people that were going on holiday. And I was like, oh, yeah, you're going on holiday, are you? And they're like, yeah, do you want to come? Cool. <laughs> Never been. Do you like red wine, Ashley? Um, I do like red wine, yeah. Oh, well, in Croatia, they do a fantastic wine called Babich. I highly recommend it. I'll make sure to pick up a bottle. Is that actually a, a genuine wine, <laughs> or are you just... Stringing him no, along there, John. <laughs> no, it's a genuine tip. It's it's some very nice wine. Yeah, I was, I was trying to tread a little carefully. I was like, is he? Is it actually a wine called Babbage? <laughs> yeah, we just wow. had this awful this awful thought of you going into a, an offline or something, asking for Babbage and getting your lights punched out. It's a rude word or something. <laughs> the respect you have for me is awesome. <laughs> Excellent. Have you been up to anything else, Ashley? Not a huge amount, no. I could pretend I've been doing other things, but it's been quite a quiet week, all in all. Okay, well, starting off with development news, we'll go straight into the DDF and the background simulation in Elite. This was one of the largest proposals I've seen come out of the, the DDF for quite some time, and this is going to explain what the actual Elite Dangerous simulation is going on in the background whilst you're playing your game. So the idea of the, the background simulation is to create a dynamic and evolving galaxy, broken down into two parts with the political side of things and obviously the core of the game, which is the economy. So the idea is you create a dynamic and evolving galaxy. The simulation should generate interesting events which can then be used to create missions. It should be able to respond to player activities, and these activities should have a greater impact than in previous games. The simulation also allows the game to respond to events ejected by Frontier, so stuff that we talked about before in terms of famine, or civil wars. The simulation is there to create a dynamic economy, so it will be there to do things like populate markets, so the quantities in markets and the prices in markets. Uh, the one thing the simulation does not do, and that is to control the various different faction commands, so the Imperials, the Federation, they are all still going to be handled directly by Frontier Developments. If you think about the simulation, and it applies to entities, the lowest form of an entity being either a system or a world within a, a system. Each world or system has a number of variables, and these variables will impact how the players will be able to interact with them and what events, missions, or economy effects they can expect to see. The document itself, as we said, it's, it's a two-person-long document. It's quite detailed, but it's really interesting as it provides an insight into what sort of things the player can expect to be able to do and interact within the game universe. So when it moves to the DDF archive, it's definitely worth uh, checking out. But just to give you some idea, the variables that affect the world and system, you've got government types, and the government types have an impact on how wealth is distributed, 
and what level of corruption would be permissible within that system. The state usually is affected by injected events, but a system or world state will affect events and associated missions such as market conditions. Uh, economy types, which reflects the main source of income for a world, such as agricultural, industrial, sort of civilian industrial or industrial military government. These are the sort of things that you can expect to buy uh, on the world. Another variable population, the size of the population would affect the availability of goods on the market, so how much you can expect to buy from them. Well, I think this is particularly interesting in that what has been submitted in terms of the fiction and expanding the elite universe and the background that we have, we started to look at quite a lot of the different variables of, of factions and what have you through, just through writing and story, as you would with the amount of writers that we've got working on different stories. And of course, I, I really like the idea of these impacted dynamics, and I quite like the idea that the player can make small decisions that can have larger effects based on what other players do and everything else. But at the same time, I think it's a really good plan to keep a human control at the very top of it, because that way it's almost like you're gaming with somebody who's at the top end looking at what all the information and all the different aggregate variables and everything else are and then can effectively make decisions that will have large impact or little impact in the game environment i think that's a really good idea um i also i think what's clear here is as well you've got cold war factions effectively through the federation and the empire and then the bit of a misnomer of the alliance because of course the alliance is a very bitty entity in itself it's almost a fraternity and then of course the corps as well the corporations so you've you've got them there and i like the idea that the dynamics are, are always changing and always flexible i think that's that's really interesting going through i think what's the most interesting thing about it is the amount of variables that can be modified and i think that will just sort of um create quite a lot of interesting opportunities especially if it can be we can at frontier can inject events into it that would be something which we'll progressively probably get better at as the game evolves. So at the beginning, you know, we might just make fairly sort of two-dimensional scenarios, but later on you might try and make quite interesting sort of moral choices for the players, for example. So if you imagine you could have two uh, different states that are at war, one could be losing, one could be winning, but the losing state could be a theocracy or a commune, a peaceful society, the other one could be a dictatorship of some sort. But you can get more monetary reward for helping the dictatorship. But then maybe there's a moral side to actually wanting to help the commune. Yeah, I think everybody will be, to begin with, it'll be about getting used to the gears. But as the thing wears on, of course, at the top end of stuff, as you're kind of monitoring what is effectively a perpetual world, you kind of get more immersed in the story, even though you're not in the story, even though you're watching the story, as it were. Mm. And I think that's a two-way process. I mean, certainly, you know, in other environments that, I've been involved in where either being at the top end or being inside the story, as it were, you get a real sort of ownership and a real sort of connection with what's going on. And it's quite interesting in that we all have a consideration in our, ourselves to want the story to have particular beats and moments. So when you, you kind of look at something and say, as you say, with this civil war and this idea of two things coming together, when you look at that, you can almost see there is a need for a resolution within that. Whatever the resolution is, there is a need for a resolution. And if the dictatorship wins, some of the players would want to then start a resistance. And you can kind of see how that builds on itself, which I think is creates an incredibly dynamic game world. Yeah, definitely. I think also these things can um, evolve over a long period of time. Some, you know, some events will be like sort of a couple of days, maybe even a couple of hours. Some might go on for months, and it will just make it a lot more sort of immersive generally. 
as the game progresses, Ashley, I mean, will there be a, a dedicated team at Frontier who's looking at the overall universe with these things and sort of just weighing them up and, and making sort of the checks and balances and injecting events? Will that be someone's full-time job? I don't imagine it'll be someone's full-time job. Well, I imagine the design team will handle it, along with doing other things. Obviously, they'll be um, working on the expansions for the game and things, but they'll also be considering interesting scenarios and interesting events that they can inject into it at the same time. But I think it'll be a team effort with all the designers that are on the project. Oh, and there's me thinking that every morning David Breben would roll over, <laughs> pick up his smartphone, and then he'd just click Leasty Famine, and then he'd go back to sleep. I thought that's the way it was going to work. Well, what happens if David Breben has a bad day at work and he just goes, where's the supernova button? Somewhere there's going to have to be a supernova. <laughs> when I read this, I was really impressed by it because mm. technically it's very, very ambitious. We've seen games in the past where you've got a lot of complex mechanics happening in the background. You've got all these different factors and you've got this causality. You know, it's been done before. You know, you think of your Sim Cities and things like that. But this is a multiplayer game. And so to go to this kind of level is going to be a, probably a real challenge, if anything, because humans are very good at finding exploits uh, and doing things that you hadn't anticipated. When it's one player, you can manage it a lot more effectively. Uh, and not just that, but the way you've got all these different factors, they're operating at kind of different levels. And so you've got this kind of, the best way I can describe it, is like a kind of a fractal system where you can interact at different levels in the game. So, for instance, you could just spend all of your time interacting with, say, one system, a couple of planets. Maybe there's, some, there's something going on between them or even within a planet itself, or you've got the bigger scenario, the long-term things that are happening, you know, systems are changing hands, and you can operate at different levels, and all these feed into that. And I just, yeah, I think it's very ambitious, and can't wait to see it work. Yeah, absolutely. And I know we've spoken about it on the podcast before in terms of the level of detail that goes into designing a game. I think for, for a lot of us, this is the first time we've actually sort of seen behind the curtain as to what goes into creating a game. Yeah, you know, like Elite Dangerous, and just the level of detail, the level of planning that goes into trying to create this simulation has just been fascinating to watch. Not an easy thing to try and get across on the podcast, but seriously, when this comes out of the DDF and goes into the DVF archive, yeah, I would highly recommend that everybody goes and have a look at what sort of interaction you can actually have with the game and how you can affect our system, how an entity, how a world will actually evolve as the game goes on. There have been attempts to try this kind of stuff in, in other environments. I mean, Games Workshop did quite a lot of national campaigns where they tried to bring the sort of tabletop warfare to clubs and what have you and then have the clubs report all the battles back to Games Workshop where Games Workshop attempted to then create some sort of campaign overview. And typically, because of the nature of, even though they, they could model down that it was this battle, it would be, have this amount of points, it would have these participants, typically when they got the information back, collating that data was hard. I think the interesting thing here, of course, is that with the fact that you're working with a computer game, it makes it much easier in that regard because at least the data has to go through a funnel that effectively is something you've already understood. Okay, we'll move on from there to the next topic that we're going to discuss from the DDF, and that is one that both John and I got quite excited about, and that's the idea of owning more than one ship, so multiple ship ownerships within Elite Dangerous. Just to give you a bit of an overview on this, you can only pilot one ship at any one time, that was to be expected. You can purchase ships using credits at shipyards. Ships may also be won in bets and competitions, and ships may be offered as rewards for events or missions. Players can trade in their current ship and receive a small percentage of its value when buying a new ship. And if that new ship is worth less than the current one, you'll get the difference refunded to you, pretty similar to what it was in Frontier. 
All cargo must be sold or it will be lost when changing ships. And then players can rent storage hangars using in-game credits for their inactive ships. Rent is charged in a regular interval and may differ depending on ship size. Players can only use one location for ship storage, but this can be changed at any point and the ships moved automatically. There will be a cap on the number of ships a player can store. Players can switch between ships when they are visiting the storage location. And if a player cannot afford to pay rent, they will not be able to access their ship until they clear their debts. John, what did you think of this, mate? The interesting thing for me was this discussion over how many ships should people be able to own, because it's actually quite an important question. In theory, and if you were just talking in terms of realism, you could just say, well, as long as you've got the cash, you can have as many ships as you want. But from a game point of view, that I don't know how easy that's going to be from the point of view of user interface designer. Can players just have 10 slots or something like that? They even said, can players own one of each ship certainly in eve online there is a well-documented thing where people try and basically collect all the ships so Mm. would there be a question of elite dangerous of trying to go around and have at least one of every single ship that you can actually fly yeah it's great there's multiple ships for the noobs out there there's caps on how much you can owe on your, your storing of ships it's good to see that they've really thought this through you've got the locationing of the ship garage as it were i think that's nice i'm probably in a minority of the belief that if you wanted to move that ownership, then it should actually be on a transport and it should be open to pirates to be able to steal. And then again, as I say, I think that's probably in the minority because I think people would be pretty annoyed if they lost all their ships on the back of an anaconda. But, uh, <laughs> Although, you know, you could, be, you could argue that there should be an insurance policy. And if, you know, you're too tight to pay for insurance and that happens to your ship, well, that's just the world that you live in. Yeah, quite possibly, I think as well. I would like to see something in terms of a time delay. If you were sat on Earth and you've got your shipyard on DSO and it's got a, a long distance to get across, then I think a time delay of it getting there, I think, is not a bad plan. If you knew your anaconda was coming out of hyperspace at a particular time, you'd go there and protect it, wouldn't you? Actually, it's an opportunity. It gives you game. Yeah, potentially. I mean, I was quite surprised that they went for the whole ownership idea. I thought there would be a, an easy way of getting around it and just having a license for ships. And that way you can go to any shipyard. And as long as you've got a license, you can collect any ship, almost like a rent-a-car idea. If you buy a license for a Cobra, you can go to any shipyard and just pick up a Cobra and off you go. Rent-a-Cobra. <laughs> Rent-a-Cobra, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, you buy a license to fly that ship and you know that ship's available at any spaceport for you. I think from a player perspective, the issue of that though is that people like to feel even obviously if it's just a digital version of the ship they like to feel ownership of a specific ship so if it was actually you're just renting another version of the cobra it's not your cobra i think i think that would bother some people i completely agree with that actually i mean i think chris would be absolutely lost without the fact (laughs) that he had his orange sidewinder and i think john obviously has another burning question to ask and how many different types of driving gloves will there be available (laughs) exactly if you you know if you get a massive dink on the side of your Cobra, no one else is going to want to <laughs> drive it. John won't want to drive it. John won't. Yeah, I was say, John no way John's going to allow you to have a dink in the side of his Cobra. He'll be right out there polishing yeah. it in his spacesuit and taking yeah. that dent straight out. I'll be <laughs> there touching, going, oh, this is going to take a hell of a lot of tea cat. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would I would have thought you'd sell it straight away, John, and buy a new one. Yeah, you see, that was, um, that was one of the questions I was going to ask, actually. It says that you know, when you do sell your ship, you do get a small percentage of its value when buying a new ship. Now, it doesn't say anything in the, uh, the DDF notes, but should the value of that percentage be dependent on how well you've looked after it? So if you're someone like me and you know, you've crashed into every space station docking bay going, or you sprayed uh, it orange. Ship's obviously gonna, 
or I've sprayed it orange, my ship's going to be worth less than, say, someone like John Stabler, who's out there in a spacesuit polishing it with tea cuts every second day. Would that actually have an effect? I don't know, I'm afraid. Yeah, I, I, I think you kind of put Ashley on the spot yeah. there. I, also, I wouldn't ask the question for Ashley, he, it was a question oh, for everybody. If he were to say yes, if he were to say yes to what you just said, Foz, then it would also imply that John could get out of his spaceship and polish it outside of the space station. So I think- that's it. If I can't teacup my ship, that's it. I'm, I'm pulling back my pledge. You're off to Star Citizen straight away, because you, you can't teacup your ship. Oh, you Monty will be chamois lovers in the future. <laughs> the important thing is, I think it would be an obvious thing that if your ship is in better state and it's not bashed up, then you know I would assume that the price you'd get for it would be, would be greater. They use the word a small percentage, which kind of worried me, because what happens if you're stupid and you buy the wrong ship or something? The old system was you're always partexing whatever you had when you bought a new ship. Mm-hmm. So if you just slipped with a mouse, you know, it'd be terrible if you lost a lot of money. Well, there's, well I think there's, also... there's quite a few um, sort of checks and balances in that in terms of if it's got cargo in it, it won't let you sell the ship without flashing up the fact that you're going to lose all your cargo and did you want to go ahead with this? And I dare say there will be a sort of, are you sure you want to buy this ship? Message that's going to pop up just to make sure you don't do it by accident. Yeah, but people are so stupid. <laughs> I imagine something like that would be a GUI issue more than anything else in that it will be more to do with how the shop operates. If you can buy and sell quite a lot of things and then at the end when you close the window it finally validates your purchase, so to speak, then it will probably be okay because you'll be like, oh no, I picked the wrong ship, go back to the buy or sell menu and like sort of retrieve it and then resend it. That's how quite a lot of games do it. And I know that's how, for example, World of Warcraft does it where your purchase when you go to a vendor isn't final until you actually close the store and move away from the vendor. So it might be that something like that happens, which would help to combat that. And it's not just that in World of Warcraft. You can actually go back to the vendor even a significant amount of time later and still be able to trade back those items that you've, you might have accidentally sold. Yeah, that's true, actually, isn't it? Because obviously people were accidentally clicking something and then they were walking away from the vendor, going and doing something else with another vendor and then realizing their mistake. So, And I think they recognized that pretty quickly, that that was a problem. Uh, there is a slight negative to this proposal in what's there because it does mean that the percentage of, of the sale as it were, with it not being the full price of the ship, or indeed more than the full price of the ship based on how you keep the ship, means there is no career for antique roadshow sellers. Is there? You're not going to get David Dickinson coming along and trying to uh, get rid of a Cobra Mark One, which is uh, a bit of a shame. I'm trying to think if I've approved the commander named David Dickinson now or not. <laughs> No, but he's it makes got... you want to pledge another 50 quid just so you can <laughs> yeah. go and get David Dickinson. He's got to be an NPC character in a shipyard or something like that. Now, bargain hunters. <laughs> and when you actually see his avatar, it's just an orange guy. <laughs> or it's just orange. <laughs> so that's a search I'm going to be doing in the database tomorrow when I get into work. <laughs> Commander David Dickinson. Uh, I would suggest you do it before the podcast goes out because you can guarantee someone will say, oh, that's a great idea. Yeah, I haven't done my commander yet. I'll have... <laughs> well, actually, here's an interesting question for you, Ashley. Um, I don't know if you know, how many people that were backers still have yet to select a name? Oh, I don't actually know. We still get quite a lot. There's still a good sort of... Every time I go in the morning, there's sort of 10, 15 that I have to sort of approve or reject, depending on what it is. 
I imagine when this goes out, there'll be about 10 David Dickinsons. <laughs> I would be disappointed if there wasn't. I mean, how strict have you... Uh, can you give us any insight into some of the rules behind names you can and can't accept? I mean, we've been relatively lenient. Unless it's like a profanity, for commander names at least, it's... Well, for any of it, it's a profanity is an issue, but we don't allow profanities. But other than that, for commander names, we're pretty lenient. The only other thing is... Um, if you put commander in your name, we reject it because it's like you realize commander's going to be prefixed onto your name anyway, so it'd be commander, commander something. Um, <laughs> so we, there are people where I've had to reject those a few times in a row. John, I think that's the subtitle for this week's episode. What? Command. Commander, commander. Yeah, commander, commander. <laughs> there is actually a commander, commander, but I'm assuming oh, no, really? that's what he wanted. So. <laughs> If you're out there, if you're out there, Commander, Commander, get in touch. Yep. <laughs> we'll invite uh, you straight on the show. I expect your email soon. Um, um, and also, what, what's the most interesting names that you've had? You must have seen something and thought, that's a bit clever. Oh, God. Have I? Um, <laughs> I don't know. It's, um, it's just a job for you, isn't it? I mean, no, I, There's I, no I, joy I, involved I, whatsoever. I do enjoy going through them. I mean, it was, it was taxing in the first few weeks while I was going through thousands of them. Um, like literally thousands and thousands of them and just like oh my god we didn't have a very good automated way of actually importing that data as well so it was just a spreadsheet of names um, and that was really trying yeah. but um, there were some funny ones but it's like by the time I remember a funny one I've gone through another you know 50 names and forgotten about it well there's, um, there's a nice comparison here because um, as the guys know and you're about to learn actually I used to run or at least help run the UK's largest live role-playing game and one of the things I did is I ran the Magic Items database. And what would happen is um, people would go off and, and sort of do their special stuff to go and make their special Magic Item. And then I'd get the request of what the item was going to be. And one of the ones I got one year was called the Stretcher of Amber Lambs, which was basically they wanted this stretcher that would make sure whoever was put on it would, wouldn't die. So I had to, you know, to format this on a small card so it explained everything that it did and so the players could go and play it according to the game rules. And so what I did is I put it on. They didn't quite have enough points in the game system to get what they wanted, so it had to have a slight downside. So I wrote on it and I made sure that it said on the end, as long as the people carrying the stretcher chanted, Nina, Nina, Nina. <laughs> and of course... Then at the end of this, at the end of this game, there is this huge battle on a Monday where there's two thousand people on each side of the field, and all of the staff members go up and have to ref this battle. So I'm there in my sort of luminous tabard to ref this battle. Two thousand people fighting on one side, two thousand people fighting on each, on the other, and then out of the distance, all I can hear is four blokes running across the field with a stretcher chanting "Nina, Nina, Nina." It was hilarious. So. I'm sure that you will have moments like that as the thing goes on. Having stared at the data, you'll probably then see it come into action at some point when, uh, when the game's released, which I think will be fun. I think so. There, there's some, there are some very good uh, NPC names, for example. We have to be a little bit strict on the NPC names, obviously, because of sort of copyright things and stuff like that. If someone wants to be Han Solo for their character name, that's not a problem. If they want to have an NPC called Han Solo, then we can't accept it. But I, I know Alan Stroud's out there somewhere. I'll meet him <laughs> one day. Yeah, I think he's definitely going to be part of a smuggler's den or something. He's, he's the lave station commander and he's off on holiday. You know, you'll see him, you know. <laughs> what, in a smuggler's den? <laughs> yeah. Hello. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> so 
The final aspect of the DDF this week is just the revised update on the trading uh, system that we're going to be using. Now, not a lot really to report on this, apart from the fact that they have added a new mission, which is the freight carrying mission that you can now pick up as part of the trading system, which I think is a nice idea to add to the simulation. Guys, anything on the, the revised trading that you thought was interesting? Not a huge amount has changed from the original proposal, I don't think. Um, no, there are exactly. obviously some changes, but they're... Uh... They're all good. There's no, it seems a lot like sort of more complete. Space can be lonely, but sometimes that's just what you want. Choose your holiday, the gas giants of Alioth. Partying the night away in your Philonaquada. Or even go back and find your ancestors on Earth. The Rockforth Corporation makes your holiday special. will let nothing disturb you. Okay, well, we'll spin on to feature request update number 12, something I'm assuming is going to be quite close to Ashley's heart, as he's finally getting to the end of his feature request update series. So this one is all about the technicalities in uh, the system. So just picking up some of the questions that uh, we thought were interesting. The one that certainly jumped out at me was the aspect of a steep learning curve. People were asking whether or not it would be possible, like in the original Elite, to have a steep learning curve for new players. I think we can all remember in the original game how long we stood outside the space station watching that rectangle spin round and round before plucking up the courage to actually fire up the thrusters and try and dock. What do we think, guys? Should there be a steep learning curve within the, uh, the new game? Oh, it just sounds like miserable people who don't want other people to have fun, really. I mean, <laughs> in this multiplayer game, where Frontier Developments are trying to appeal to a larger audience, you know, they want to try and pick up some people who perhaps haven't been interested in the space sim genre. There's no reason why it can't be, you know, made a little bit easier for people to dock. You know, I don't want to come into the Sol system and find some poor guy parked outside of a, <laughs> of a space station, you know, <laughs> too scared to dock. It's, it's, it's just ridiculous. With his anaconda wedged in the middle of that infederal <laughs> warship. So uh, it's it's just people, it's, it's almost, <laughs> I was going to say, it's elitism. Um, you know, there's people thinking, look, I played the old elite and I spent 10 hours learning how to dock and it shouldn't be easy for new players. It's like, well, just get over yourselves. We want this game to appeal to a lot of people, so a lot of people will play it. And because, as we found out from the DDF, a lot of the universe is going to be driven by the players and their actions. So we need a broad spectrum of people playing the environment that Elite came out in was a very barren environment for science fiction computer gaming. You know, you've got the first 3D computer game comes out, you know, all those years ago. And immediately it is a niche market, but it's cornered that niche market and people flock towards it. Computer gaming's got a, a limited appeal at that point in time, a limited audience, but they're all looking at this thing that is the best or the best scene of, of anything that's there because it's 3D and everything else isn't. And you can afford it to be difficult because it's got an air of mystery and myth to it. So you can really afford this. Oh, yeah, but if you can get past that, it's really good. So, of course, people are going to keep trying and, you know, frustration and everything else and matching the rotation of the space station. But gradually, you know, they keep trying to get into the game. They get immersed. The environment that we have for this game now, totally different environment. And we can kind of talk about the fact that, yeah, we want it to be nostalgic and we want it to be back to what was or anything else. But you can't deny the fact that there are other games out there that will be graphically comparable and will have 
their own takes on a multiplayer space environment. So the way that you try and get the audience, the way you try and build a, an audience is to be slightly different, slightly unique. The way you don't build an audience is to make it too damn difficult for them to actually do anything in the game. Absolutely, Alan. And it was something that came up on the Conclave, and something that my brother reminded me of afterwards, is that with those old games like Elite, there was actually quite an investment in actually getting that game loaded up and actually running. You know, there was either a cassette or there wasn't the, the instant loading times that we have today. So once you've actually loaded up, you're invested in playing that game and making sure that you, you, know, you get the most out of it before you're prepared to go and sit another 10 minutes and load another one. We don't have that in today's world. You know, everything is much more instantaneous. Interesting, though, actually, when you asked uh, Sandy and Michael, there was a split between them. Sandy actually wanted it to be you know, reasonably steep like the old game, whereas Michael, with his you know, frontier hat on, was uh, trying to think maybe it should be a little bit more balanced and a little bit more accessible. Oh, sort of somewhere in the middle. I agree that the game should be accessible for newcomers. That's sort of obvious. We want as many people to play it as possible. At the same time, I am someone that enjoys hard games with steep learning curves. I like to mm. sort of know... I like the game to sort of give me a hard time and to always know that there's sort of another level that I can achieve kind of thing. Like I can get better at the game sort of thing and there's always a new thing to learn. But that doesn't necessarily have to be as soon as you go into the game, it's punishing. It could be that, you know, you play it for a little while and you realize there are other things you can do. There's more sort of avenues you can go down. I think it's one of those things that's just going to have to come down to balance more than anything else. Oh, absolutely. And I think you can grade that, can't you? You can start off, as long as you give people a game, to begin with and i don't mean that in terms of the package or the download or anything else i mean once they've started as long as they can get in and they can start to do things without too much preamble then if you want to get on and if you want to move on up there's no problem there in the learning curve steepening as it were which i think is is perfectly fine because of course when you do achieve something at that point it creates privilege and when you create privilege it, it makes people feel ah actually i'm i'm here but if four people go off, play a computer game, come back, and then they all talk to each other again. The person who leads the discussion is usually the one that's got the furthest. So, of course, you've kind of got that ability to create privilege within what's there, which I think is, is natural to any gaming environment. Yeah, Alan said what I was going to say, which is, sure, you can create a game which is accessible, but also you know allows players to partake in something which is a lot more difficult and they will get some kind of privilege out of it i think that is the way to go but don't make basics like docking hard <laughs> yeah no i definitely agree that um basics like docking shouldn't be challenging for new players i do like the idea that you could get to a certain point where you understand all the basics though and you think you know you're the best pilot in the galaxy you go into the next system and you realize that you've sort of stumbled into the wrong neighborhood though you're you know you're a small fish in a big pond at that point We've discussed before on here about Freelancer and how Freelancer in the past, you didn't realize, or at least I didn't realize until I completed it, that what they'd done is they'd gradually gone through the, the four main zones of the game and increased the difficulty through the four main zones. And that was fine. You didn't realize as you went through them. Because when you finished the story, you went back into the first zone and it was all really easy. And actually the sandbox felt really rubbish because, of course, most of the galaxy was just a pushover. So you ended up spending all your time in one zone and, and, you know, and gradually that became a bit rubbish as well. So that kind of incremental, because obviously it's, it's there as a, as a single player game. So it wasn't, you know, at that point in time, it wasn't uh, too much of a, a problem in, in that campaign. But I think creating the game for the harder level or for, you know, the harder level still, I mean, that's, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be a challenge. And, you know, and of course at the top end of that, you have the, the sort of maxing out problem too. So it'd be interesting to see what people do with it. 
and I'd be interested to see, you know, what what techniques frontier developments are going to use to kind of motivate people to, you know, try the more difficult things, the more difficult content within the game. One of the easiest things you can do are, are things like titles. I mean, Ashley's already talked about how you, everyone's going to have Commander in front of their name. But all you have to do is, you know, have it so that when people see you in game or see your ship, they can see that your rank is somehow elevated because you've achieved more. Then that, in a way, is like this kind of self perpetuating system where people want to go and, and achieve something that other players can instantly recognise. That was suggested in one of the DDF discussions, yeah, was. wasn't it? And I don't think people were particularly keen on the idea. Yeah, um, the idea of having suffix right titles and to reflect on how far you are. Not obviously your, not your elite ranking, but how far you've gone along a certain career path so that mm. people would actually you know, see you as, as a pirate or you know, as, a, as a master trader. And they didn't like that. Uh, no, no which I actually was quite surprised about because I really liked the idea, you know, of uh, coming up into a, a lonely system and you see Frank the Merchant, you think, okay, fair enough, I'm probably not in that much danger. But if you see Frank Blackbeard, that's when you're, you know, you're going to have the distinct uh, pinching moment. You think, actually, I'm, I'm going to be in a bit of trouble here. I should probably just turn around and just make sure he doesn't chase me. Yeah, Frank okay. Vader. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're just picking random names from your database now, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Frank Vader, if you're listening tonight, um, we'd really like you to get in touch. Do email info laveradio.com. <laughs> We're not having him on the show. We can't cope with all that heavy breathing on the on the. Show. Interesting. We're talking about multiplayer and single player. One of the things that um, people have been asking Ashley is whether or not it'd be possible to actually turn back time, as it were, and go to uh, obviously the galaxy is evolving all the time. But people wondering if it was possible to sort of revert to a previous instance in its timeline. And I think this was a unanimous no from both Sandy and Michael, wasn't it, Ashley? Yeah. I mean, even trying to think about how that would work in a multiplayer sort of environment is just a bit of a headache where everyone's in the same universe it's um yeah I, I think it would take a lot of development time for very little you know benefit really it's a nuts yeah. idea absolutely <laughs> nuts idea the couple of things that i've done we we tried a, a time travel idea and the only way in which you can manage a time travel idea is if it is a focused event that occurred in a fixed place in a fixed period and then you knew basically that the outcome you know, was already effectively wasn't going to change the current day. So it became a nice piece of nostalgia and could effectively um, give the players who went there an opportunity to think like they were going to change the future, but actually they wouldn't. And that would be the only way in which you could do it. But in that sense, you would be putting an awful lot of effort into something that really wouldn't affect very many people so if somebody wants to do time travel then they're looking for surely doctor who the multiplayer online game or back to the future the multiplayer <laughs> online game. Okay. one of the things that did sort of jump out at me is this question that people have asked about having an enhanced view within the game obviously one of the nice things about frontier was how it was as close as as david could get it to being astronomically accurate and correct and people have said, is it going to be possible in the game to maybe have an image enhancement mode that would allow a player to observe space in a manner that was represented by things such as the Hubble telescope in rich bright colours and deep hues? Obviously, probably not something that's going to be in the initial release, actually, but something they're going to look at later on down the line? Um, possibly. I think the one thing about this sort of question is that it's um, difficult really to translate exactly what it is that the person's asking, because when we get it, it's essentially just a line of um, a single line question. It might be that the actual question when it was originally asked came with sort of four paragraphs of um, <laughs> explanation. But I think it would be a cool feature, but it's definitely not something that's um, necessary for release one. I think it's the nice thing about the fact that um, 
we've got the the option of expanding this universe and expanding it. So there's nothing to say that these sort of things can't be rolled out later on down the line. And obviously, we already know that uh, that David's obviously very very passionate about his astronomy. So it'll be quite interesting to see how accurate this thing can be made. Yeah, definitely. I think it's um it's something that could be really cool, but it's equally they might you know they might research it and find that the amount of development time that actually have to go into doing it would sort of outweigh the perceivable benefits because it would sort of be a little bit of a gimmicky thing so there'd also be the element of trying to work out whether it could have any actual sort of perceivable benefit in the game so actually what we're, we're talking about here is rather than ship porn we're talking about astronomy porn <laughs> exactly, yeah. that kind of a <laughs> if you think about it if it's some kind of stellar cartography within your ship then actually it's going to impact on every player isn't it it's going to be pretty for everybody so you know it might be that that's a, a useful thing i don't know could be something that they maybe look at if you're going into scanning technology and using it as part of a maybe some sort of scanning mini mission or something like that when you're exploring later on they can maybe have something that looks like the hubble uh, imagery but is used as part of your scanning dialogue yeah that's true it could also be that certain you know certain colors correlate to different things so for you know if you're going to use your fuel scoop it might be easier to sort of locate fuel if you're in a massive nebula or something like that there's things it could be used for but it definitely would have to take a lot of thinking on the design team side to actually come up with a, a really useful reason to put it into the game, I think. Yeah, I think they'd have to be more used to it than simply for a mission, because it'd be a lot of effort just to create something that would help in, you know, a, a very a small set of missions. One of the questions I loved on here was the, the really geeky question, which I was definitely want to know the answer to, is how is cargo going to be measured? Um, <laughs> Strange enough, John, I was going to gloss over that one. <laughs> Well, that's fine. And I just thought it was good that other people are asking these questions. And by looking at the answers, they're going to stick to what they had in previous games, which is like tons, basically. Which is interesting, because that's actually one of the ones you've got an answer from uh, from Mr. Braven himself, who seemed to weigh in on the idea of naming the unit of cargo. Obviously, we know that David is... He does have a sailboat, doesn't he, actually? I'm pretty sure he said he's got a, a, a boat that he sells. Um, I believe so. I've never been invited to go on it, but um, <laughs> maybe in the future... <laughs> Dave, I thought David, that's where the launch party was going to be held. <laughs> David does. David does believe that spaceships are considered to be yachts, aren't they? So that's his his analogy. So I would anticipate that that's down to some experience. Well, we'll just read David's answer because I say there's more than just John out there who likes to have a geek over this sort of thing. And uh, I must admit, I did find it quite interesting. So David said, "Yes, we do need to name the unit of cargo in maritime shipping today. The unit is the ungainly TEU, which stands for Trailer Equivalent Unit. In other words, uh, one lorry load." And a large ship might be 6,000 TEU. So what they're looking at in the game is they might call it T or ton for shorthand. Happy, John? Yeah, I mean, it's basically just saying, well, it's like previous games. Um, <laughs> because I'm sure, you know, people have been quite creative with their different ideas of how you can have different types of cargo. You could have gases in cylinders and you know, liquids in barrels and all this. But really, I think it doesn't really add anything to the game. So why not just stick with tons? It's, it's the best way. Well, I think with games, I think keeping the inventory system simple is quite important. Yes. You can be quite complex in a lot of other areas, but if you've ever played a game which has a really complex um, inventory system, it just makes it such a headache. Like, it's, it doesn't add anything to the game to have to really think through where you put like things in your inventory. Yeah, no, I think as well, you've also got the open argument, which always happens where you have somebody who attempts to use the units of cargo to try and work out some kind of rationale or mathematical principle for how many people exist on a planet or how much food is delivered per day to some place etc etc and of course the minute that you narrow down your measurements 
into something very specific, then you add weight to that kind of mathematical correlation. And it's kind of, whilst I appreciate that kind of accuracy, and I think that kind of realism is something that sometimes designers need to have a bit of a sketch towards when they're putting something together, because if it's obviously wrong, it, it feels wrong. But at the end of the day, the story and the play and everything else is, is more important. So I think abstracting slightly sometimes is a really good idea. So in this case, whatever the unit of measurement is, they may well narrow down exactly what that is by comparison to kilograms or by comparison to old earth metric tons, et cetera, et cetera. But as soon as you do that, you do open up you know, an argument for that kind of calculation. Is your life like this? It could be like this. some excitement back in your life. Book an adventure in the Lave Business Directory. Now. Let's go on to the feature request update number 13, A Brave New World. And this is the question about the, the huge galaxy and the intention of the team to make the galaxy as immersive as possible. Some of the questions that came up from this, uh, certainly the first one I liked was the question about non-player controlled characters. Obviously, they're going to make up a large part of the game and how they behave and interact with players is going to go a long way in determining how immersive uh, Elite Dangerous is going to be. The question that jumped off the page for me is whether the NPCs actually have memories of previous encounters with players. There's something that Sandy said is definitely something in present in the game and Michael said it's definitely part of the current design. I think this is something that would take it you know, a big step further forward than the previous games in terms of remembering your reputation and also what's happened to you in the past. So if you've, <laughs> if you've shot someone up or pirated their ship, there's a chance that they come back and actually exert revenge on you. What do you guys think of this? It's obviously an immersive element if they can do that. The implementation will be hard. There's always going to be those little moments where they kind of remember something that isn't quite the way it happened. But at the end of the day, <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's fine. I like the idea. I, I, think, I think it's ambitious. And, um, and if they're going to attempt it, then um, more power to it. Yeah, great. I'm just wondering whether it's, is it, is it just going to be a simple case of, you know, the people that you're talking to, the people, you know, handing out missions to you, obviously, are they going to be aware of, you know, what we'd call quest chains, so that, you know, they're, they're trying to tell a story to you, is that what they mean by it, or do they mean something else, I, I, I don't quite, I can't read a lot into the question and the answers, really. I'm not entirely sure, I think, because, like I said, the way that the question was um, given to us was just, Will NPCs remember your, you know, your actions? And then the response I get back is yes. There's, there's a little bit of ambiguity there, I suppose, but I can try and clear that up. To a certain extent, I suppose, if you're in combat with someone, if you kill them when you're in combat with them, then there's nothing to remember anyway, unless it's, was it, Scar from Battle Scar Galactica? Um, <laughs> but I think mostly it'll be towards the NPCs that you don't end up killing, I suppose. Well, I would guess, I mean, you know, the, the mission chain idea is, is probably the simplest method of implementing this, which John has, you know, has already alluded to in that uh, if there is a record of what you have done as a pilot and if that record is then tied into what this particular NPC has offered that were part of, you know, what you have done, then that's, that's a memory chain, isn't it? So, you know, so that's fairly simple and straightforward. The difficulties are then when, when it becomes more about live events. So if it becomes about, 
you know, a, a, a pirate that you're supposed to chase down and you chase him down and he manages to escape, will he remember that you tried to chase him down and so on and so forth? That that kind of thing becomes a little bit more difficult to, to map and judge. But I assume, you know, they're, they're still events, aren't they? So just, just to pick up on something that Ashley said, actually, which I thought was quite interesting, it made me think about, um, you were talking about you killed an NPC and they'd be dead, so they wouldn't be able to remember stuff. And I'm just wondering that, is it going to be the case that if you kill a human player in what is a multiplayer game, um, they always get away in an escape pod, but the NPCs always die? I mean, that might be slightly jarring, um, and I'm just wondering if there's any kind of attempt to redress the balance so that most of the, say most of the NPCs always do get away in a skate pod or something, just to try and make it not so obvious. Yeah, I mean, I don't know exactly what the design team have in store for that, but that might be the case because, as you said, most the vast majority of the players will be escaping. There's obviously, I don't know what the most current design is with you know the different versions. At one point, of course, there was the Iron Man mode, wasn't there? Yeah. Where you could just die outright and you'd restart. But I think even with sorry, even with the Iron Man though, the idea with behind that was that there was a manual escape pod, so that probably in a lot of those circumstances, as long as they knew what they were doing, you would see the escape pod anyway because they would get away. Roll your yeah, dice. Roll your dice. Ten percent <laughs> chance escape. Oh no! <laughs> but I mean, you know, there's a flip side to that as well, John. In that, you know, if the NPC database is is a database of names, and if uh, NPCs die, then what happens to that name? Is it gone or does that name then regenerate? You know, so it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, if most of the NPCs, apart from the ones that die as part of missions, you know, if they do get away, then you don't necessarily have as much of a problem with the with the database, I'm guessing. Well, I'm I'm thinking more in terms of Kickstarter pledges and rewards and what have you, because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I've I've put Alan Stroud somewhere in the Elite Dangerous Universe. If Alan Stroud gets blown to hell within two <laughs> weeks of the opening of the game, then you know, I'm never gonna meet him. <laughs> Which is actually, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I'm I'm actually fine with. But you know, some people might think, oh, it it, it kind of has a, a a sort of a, a sort of a flip side to it, doesn't it? I, I to be honest, as as far as I'm concerned, I mean, I, I don't mind and and I don't care, and I think I think you know, actually, the the database will probably and you know, Ashley can decide whether he wants to comment on this but I would I would assume that the database can then generate names because it will have to later on. Yeah, I mean, it will have to generate. Um names for new NPCs anyway. There will be NPCs added to the galaxy. So the, name, the names of the new NPCs that are created will come out of that, the same database that sure. all of the player names are in already from the Kickstarter. Say, for example, I've got Chris Forrester in there. Is the database going to uh, just have the one instance of Chris Forrester or would we see lots of Chris Foresters in the universe? And I suppose subject to that as well, if you're saying that that same database is going to be used to create n- new NPCs, could you have you know, sort of an amalgamation of you know, Alan Stroud and have Alan Forrester or Christopher Stroud? Is that how the database will work? The details of it haven't exactly been ironed out yet, but I imagine it's going to be a mix of both. So obviously a lot of the feedback we got early on was that if you if you input a name, Obviously, you don't want it to be split up. You want to be able to meet Alan Stroud. But then equally, we need to have as many names as possible. So there's no reason why Alan Stroud can't be possible and then Alan Forrester, yeah. et cetera. Yeah, no, I, I, I like that. I think that's, mm. that's fine. Um, what I wouldn't like is there to be 20 Alan Strouds or Alan Stroud died and then Alan Stroud appears. You know, I, I'd, <laughs> yeah, I'd, quite sure. like, I'd quite like Alan Stroud RIP. You know, I think, I think that's, that's perfectly fine. <laughs> I think Alan and Stroud, you know, it's poten- there's potential. It's a large universe, exactly, you know. That's you what get I'm quite thinking. a few of them. Oh, yeah. Okay, okay. I mean, they obviously wouldn't all be, you know, in the same 
like system, yeah, maybe. That's it. The clan, the clan of <laughs> Planet Stroud. Like, please, please don't go there. That would be awesome. That would be like if you gun down all of the Strouds, it would flash up achievement. You know, right on, Commander. Stroud Holocaust or something like that. That'd be brilliant. <laughs> Oh, I think we probably just have to leave that one there and move on to something else. What was I going to say next? You were about to say, is there going to be a queue outside of space stations? Because that's what someone asked. Is there going to be traffic, NPC traffic in the busy systems? I think what they're asking is, you know, will you be able to see NPCs going on trade routes? And if it's a busy system, will that will there be more NPCs going to and from specific trade routes? And, you know, will, will there be that illusion that there's people going and doing their daily business kind of thing? Um, as opposed to like waiting outside, uh, you know, <laughs> queuing up for someone to dislodge their cobra from the uh, rocket <laughs> I just thought the natural thing was that if you did have that traffic, then as a consequence, you would have some kind of parking issue outside of you know space stations. Well, you know, I thought it was an English thing to queue, John. So what, are you saying that in, in the future everyone's going to be French and they're just going to all try and dock at the same time and then just blow up? <laughs> or oh, Italian. And, mess with your paintwork. <laughs> yeah, or Italian and they're going to start a war outside the space station arguing over who was first. Just loads of comm chatter outside every station just going, he's pushing in. Another question that came in is the subject of space stations and whether or not a space station was actually able to take damage. Quite sensibly on this one, uh, Frontier Development have said no. It might be a separate discussion to have, but certainly not in the original release. Are they going to have any damage to the space stations? I mean, maybe later on down the line, can you guys see a place for blowing up a space station? This is purely speculation, but depending on how they handle missions and like instance missions, perhaps, there may be something where one of the missions is go to this really far off system and there is this space station there and you need to go and blow it up with these people so you would be able to destroy a space station but it would be like a a kind of a temporary one that appeared just for the mission that was done in elite i believe it was the deadly mission uh you had to go to tide died and uh, and blow the station up which they, they figured some way out to remove the station shielding so you still had vipers coming out of the station but you could launch a, a missile and uh, and blow the station up so there was some way to to do that in terms of whether you want that in the game, yeah, I, I kind of think later on, yeah, I think, you know, sort of mission-based and everything else, I think, you know, it'd be really interesting to, to sort of see that. I can see why, you know, at, at this stage, early on, you kind of want to get everything set up, don't you, really? Fictionally, and speaking as a writer, yeah, absolutely, I want to see space stations take some damage. Yeah, take some damage as opposed to blow up, though. I mean, one of the nice things for running missions on EVE Online is that you do get the opportunity to blow up some really big structures and they really do go bang in the most beautiful way. But, I mean, it says space stations here, but what's to say that you can't have missions where you go and blow up a you know, a pirate supply depot or something like that? Uh, something that's going to be out in the far reaches of the galaxy, uh, something that's going to be a big structure, potentially sort of based on an asteroid or something, and you get a big, you know, like you did in the Frontier where you had the nuclear missile, you have the, you know, a one-shot blow up, and then you get to sit back and watch this massive structure blow up. I'd love that to be in there from day one. Maybe not space stations, because you know, obviously there's a lot of people on space stations, and I just don't think I could handle the guilt. But pirates, yeah, pirate asteroid bases, yeah, it's fair game. Because pirates aren't people, are they? No, absolutely. No, they, they, they made a choice. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Finally, just to cap the 
the questions off. There's been a few small questions about the galaxy in general, what sort of things would be in there. People seem to think that uh, there was a concern about uh, putting cartoony asteroids, endless cartoony asteroids in there. Now, Ashley, you're going to have to explain this one to me because I don't entirely know what a cartoony asteroid looks like at the best of times. Yeah, I mean, there were quite a lot of these questions and some of them I sort of cut because it was like fairly abstract. Like we got a lot where it was like no cliche this or, you know, and it was like, okay, well, that's sort of subjective. But I think what they mean by cartoony ones is, you know, the term sort of meatballs in space where it's like all the asteroids kind of look the same. They're all more or less spherical, whereas obviously that's not something that we want in the final game. Want there to be a lot of variety and for it to look good and look authentic more than anything else. I don't know how far along the um, you know the game engine is, but the asteroids that we've already seen in some of the uh, the videos already, I thought they looked great. I didn't see anything in there that could be described as cartoony. I think the problem was that if you really look closely at the videos, you could see obviously that this asteroid field was made up of a handful of asteroid models, which were obviously just replicated across. So I guess if you stood there staring at it for long enough, you could say, well, it's just a couple of the same models, you know, and it's quite basic. And and I think the point was that they wanted to see a large variation and it wasn't obvious that they were all just all balls. But Ashley just said it. In real life, asteroids are formed under gravity. So they're all pretty much spherical. If there's any detail to them, it's because they've just undergone some kind of an impact or something. And so they're more of a kind of a rarity. So I don't quite... I think At the well. same time, though, this is the game of you know, all about procedural generation. I'm pretty sure when it comes to things like this, when we've seen what they're already doing with the planets, I don't think we really need to get that concerned about anything in the game looking too samey, are we? I think, well, the key thing here is, of course, is what you base that, that procedural generation on. If you, if you base it on the object, then it, it can be problematic. If you base it on the components of the object, then, of course, you, know, you can get something that's, that's much more detailed. And everything I've seen so far suggests that there's an awful lot going on with the components of the object as opposed to uh, the objects themselves. Just as an aside... Some of the artwork I'm working on at the moment, I've been using some standard models of asteroids that, that have existed. And you look at them, and you know and these are obviously models that, that someone has gone onto the internet having uh, carefully looked through a telescope and modelled you know, the asteroid based on uh, actual data and, and come out and, and put a 3D Studio Max image together. And, and this thing is you know, what it is. You get about 17 or 18 of those. And there is a similarity to them, and there is a slight strangeness to them, and there is a slight, almost, at least in a lot of them, there's quite a softness to them. Uh, they look smooth. And part of that is, as John said, about wearing and about, you know, so they, they don't look like the, the kind of cinematic monstrosities that we would have in, in, in something like Armageddon. They, you know, they kind of don't look like that a lot of the time because those kind of things have been enhanced cinematically to make them look scary. Fair point. Well, speaking about other scary things, I know we've already mentioned it in the, uh, in the podcast, but uh, the idea that whether or not the galaxy is going to have supernovas, Mr. Braven says supernovas are unbelievably rare, so aren't going to be the things that happen just when he has a bad day. So he says maybe once in a galaxy every 50 years or so, so we will certainly not have more than one. Uh, even one would be a devastating event for the surrounding hundreds of light years, which would be quite interesting. It'd be interesting to see what sort of major events Frontier Development can actually throw into the Frontier Universe. No repeat of the old Elite mission, then the sun is going nova, will you help us? Um, <laughs> you know? Yeah. There was quite a lot of suns going supernova in the original Well, every, everybody did it. You know, obviously, it was as soon as you got to, I think it was as soon as you got to dangerous or competent, you had the, the sun is going nova, will you help us? And um, you had to have a galactic hyperdrive on board. But of course, you don't have a galactic hyperdrive, so at the end of the day, there's no need for a sun going nova, is there? Like, like 
David says, it's really going to be a sort of one-time thing, and when we do it, it will be something that we'll want to do right, and it will actually have a massive impact on the actual gameplay of the galaxy. And I think that will actually be a lot more interesting from um, a player perspective than if we were to have one sort of, you know, every other week or daily, to actually have a massive um, thing and have a lot of events and things which all sort of correlate around the fact that the star's just about to explode, basically. That's, that's an in-game newspaper, isn't it? The Daily Supernova. It has to, <laughs> it has to kind of be there. I was going to say, the way you phrased it there, actually, it was almost as if you were saying that they, it's almost agreed that it will happen at least once. I don't... That's, that's definitely not a decision that's been made at the moment, I don't think, or not one that I've, you know, I've heard, but I imagine it probably would at some stage. I think... now, now that sort of people have asked about it, I think it's something that it'd be a shame to miss out on the opportunity to do it. Maybe, for, you know, when a new expansion comes out or something like that, to just have a massive event like that would be really awesome. I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you a little bit here, Ashley, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tick John off slightly. The, the whole thing of actually, this is a, a tricky question. When someone asks you, will there be a game feature? And, you know, it's when that game feature is kind of something that's up for discussion and is on the table and sounds pretty cool and sounds like it could be amazing, uh, the, the worst thing that you can do is either say yes or no a lot of the time in a, in a very straight way. Or, or yes and explain it, or no and explain it in a very straight way, because shutting something off or, or opening something up either encourages speculation or encourages a little bit of disappointment. Yeah, this could be really cool. If it's going to be done, it's got to be done right. I think really David's kind of summed it up in that regard. Okay, well that's going to do it for the development news this week. What we'll do is we'll go straight into the community corner. Tonight on Channel 9, a pay-per-view exclusive. The Women's Interplanetary Wrestling Final! Two of the fiercest competitors ever to enter a cage will battle it out until one of them is maimed or killed. Will Sam the Six Sykes rise to the top? I'm gonna make that bitch wish she'd never been cloned. Or will Andrea Harding, the beastie from Leastie, overcome a season of injuries to defend her title? I may have had both nipples bitten off and a permanent handprint on my backside that's visible from space, but it just makes me tougher. Who has the best strategy? Which of them has the mindset of a winner? Who is least deterred by the ankle-deep vodka jelly? Find out at 9pm Lave Central Time. Don't miss this sector's greatest spotting spectacle, Interplanetary Wrestling. Because two women fighting in jelly is legitimate sport, not just an excuse for self-fulfillment. And obviously the Community Corner this week is going to be quite special because we do have a special guest on the show, Ashley Barley from Frontier Developments. We're going to do a quick Q&A with you, if that's all right. Maybe for those people that obviously uh, came into the Kickstarter or came into the Elite Universe uh, without maybe having some of the background, can you give us a bit of background on the company, Frontier Developments, you know, where they got started from, you know, what mainline games people might have heard of, what recent projects you know, how many members of staff you've got, um, and the fact that you have you know offices abroad as well? Uh, sure, yeah. I mean, so um, Frontier was established in 1994. The first game was uh, Frontier First Encounters. The two games before that were weren't developed by Frontier as such. They were developed by David. And since then, they've sort of developed a lot of games across a variety of genres on a lot of platforms as well. Notable ones include um, Roller Coaster Tycoon 3, uh, Thrillville, Lost Winds. Disneyland Adventures, Connectimals, and uh, Coaster Crazy as well, which is one of our more recent ones. So we've got two offices. The first one's in Cambridge, and that's sort of the main office. And then the second one's in uh, Halifax in Canada. And we have about 200, just over 200 mem- uh, members of staff between the two offices. 
And I think the reason, the main advantage of having an office in Halifax was uh, partially because in Canada, there's a lot of industry talent. They really sort of foster the game industry there as well. And secondly, because it gives a sort of base of operation in North America. So it's mm. good for meeting publishers and going to trade shows and things like that. So there's just a lot of benefits to it. Great stuff. And can you explain a little bit to the listeners about what your responsibilities and your remit is within Frontier Development? Uh, yeah, sure. So um, my job role is quite broad, really, but um, it can really be summarized by that I pretty much manage all the dialogue between that we have as a company between our players and our community. So uh, this includes sort of managing the forums, of course, um, our social media outlets, our Twitter and our Facebook, things like that. Um, I also answer pretty much all of the emails from our fans and community and things like that. Uh, so that can be anything from sort of support requests to gameplay tips, uh, general inquiries and requests. It can be a really mi- real mixed bag. And then my actual background sort of in marketing. So I also help out with uh, sort of content changes to the website. And I'm hoping to be a bit more involved in the main marketing drive for Elite once we start really sort of uh, raising the gear on that later on in the year. Perfect. So it sounds like you wear quite a few hats. Maybe you can take us through uh, what's a typical day for you at Frontier? So usually when I get in in the mornings, the first thing I do is I go through my emails. On a typical day, I usually enter into the office and I'll have about 20 to 30 emails to go through. Uh, this is more on a Monday, of course, because uh, they built up over the weekend. If something particularly notable has happened, like we've had a game announcement or release or you know a Kickstarter campaign, uh, <laughs> then I can open up my uh, e- email client and I'll have you know over 500 emails easily waiting for me when I get in, with more just sort of coming in every minute. And on those days, I tend to do very little else other than answer emails all day. Usually after I do my emails, I usually sort of check in with the moderators on the forum, see if there's anything that requires my urgent attention. And then if there isn't, I'll, you know, I'll troll through the forums on my own and just sort of see what else there is and if anything notable has come up and needs to be addressed. And then I usually go to the commander names and NPC names, go through those, and then I usually go and answer questions and things that have been posted to our social media. And then what little time I have left after that, I usually, the next thing I do is start working on the updates. So the newsletter, the feature request updates, um, and things like that. And then there's a lot of other small tasks which are a bit more reactive depending on what announcements we've made or what we have coming up, what games are out at the moment. But yeah, usually I have plenty to do anyway. On the show, we've obviously talked a lot about the kickstarter campaign from a fan's perspective you know the highs at the beginning the low points in the middle and the exhortation at the midnight finale when we knew the game was finally going to get made what was the kickstarter journey like for you as a member of the you know, frontier developments crew i think for everyone in the office it was a pretty nerve-wracking time I mean, it went on for basically two months 60 days especially in the middle of the campaign when it slowed down a lot i think much like a lot of the fans and a lot of the backers at the time people started to get a little bit anxious if you were, you know, just going around the office, obviously at the time, most people were still on other projects, but they would, because most people have sort of two monitors at work, you'd always see people with their work on one monitor and then on the other one, they'd have the Kickstarter page open, just sort of, you know, constantly F5ing every now and then uh, <laughs> to see sort of what the, um, the total was up to. So I think generally, like just within the office, everyone was sort of, it was, it was a very like weird experience, but it was really interesting. Most of my work was around Coaster Crazy because we'd just released that. At the exact same time, we'd obviously released the Kickstarter campaign and um, Lost Winds, which is one of our more successful games of the last few years, was um, inducted into the App Store Hall of Fame. So, and it became free on the App Store for a little while. So we had just like three things all happening at the same time. And I was just buried under a mountain of emails for about two weeks. <laughs> but sort of every three second I had from like answering emails, I was trying to like find new game forums to visit and just saying like, oh, I work at frontier like uh, we've got this kickstarter going and just trying to make sure as many people knew about elite as possible one of the things that i've often wondered about is what percentage of the developers do you think actually were fans of elite before they came on board at frontier developments 
It's quite a difficult uh, question, I suppose. Um, I imagine the majority, I'd say. Like, um, I think a lot of a lot of the people, especially like you know, they were graduate artists and graduate designers and things like that, which are elite would, would have been a little bit before their time. But yeah. equally, if you work in the game industry, you know what elite was because it was so such a groundbreaking game when it came out. So I think it would be a mix, but um, there's definitely at least with pretty much everyone in the office, there's that respect for what the original was, even if you weren't around when the game actually came out. I think actually, um, I, I've got quite a lot of friends in Cambridge, and um, some of them know a few people who work at, uh, at Frontier, or have worked at Frontier, and they, they do generally comment that the one thing if they, they say to anybody that they worked at Frontier was, um, prior to the Kickstarter was, so when you make another Elite game, <laughs> yeah. and that's all they ever got asked. <laughs> that and uh, Rollercoaster Tycoon we get a lot of as well. Yeah. <laughs> The Rollercoaster Tycoon is a great game. Without putting yourself on the block then, uh, what have you seen on the developers' desks that really excites you about the upcoming Elite Dangerous game? I think the thing I've seen, like the single feature that I've seen which like excites me the most is probably the 3D cockpit. It was a thing that, there, there was sort of a, um, a build of it made quite early on so you could just try it out. And it was an idea which I'd heard we were going to do and I thought it was quite interesting, but it wasn't until I actually got to sort of play with it and fly around and use it and feel the sort of um, how the inertia sort of affects the experience like I started to really see how uh, uh, we just make the game just a lot more interesting just really make it a lot more immersive talking about the cockpit being you know an extra level of sort of immersion because of the inertia and everything else how's that going to work how's that going to come across to the player um so the inertia how it affects it really is that you just feel the motion of the ship a lot more so it just makes it um just a much more sort of grounded experience you really actually feel like you are in a cockpit so the level of community interaction and involvement that you required as a result of the Kickstarter is practically unprecedented within games development. You have new works of licensed fiction. You have many hundred strong forum members in the DDF uh, with thoughts and ideas on the current you know, path that the developers are taking. And finally, you have the main forums which have exploded since the close of the Kickstarter. Uh, has this been a blessing turned into a curse? And does it put a strain on the development time and resources? Immediately after the Kickstarter ended, it was definitely extremely daunting i think the designers especially were extremely concerned that with the amount of posts that were just going into the design forum they like would have they'd really struggle to keep up with it sort of thing but obviously it started to level out and our team grew a lot so there was more designers put on it and they found it a lot more manageable eventually and now it's like a very good sort of tool for getting feedback from the community so it's been a very productive sort of source and uh for the designers to do their job i think now but it was definitely there was a stage at the beginning where it was like what we got ourselves into a little bit I think you probably felt that probably more than a lot of people obviously trying to handle the community. I mean, the community must have just sort of swollen from the original levels of that forum. I mean, I joined the forum in 2006 and you know, there was a few of us there that were sort of regularly checking. But I mean, all we were doing is basically checking to see whether or not Elite Four was going to be announced. And they go from that to you know, the influx of people that flooded there from the Kickstarter comments page, you know, pretty much as from midnight when the campaign was funded. I mean, your job must have gone... Your workload must have gone through the roof. Uh, yeah, I mean, when, when I first started, I actually only started a couple of months before the Kickstarter started. <laughs> um, <laughs> so for the first couple of months, it was essentially just a, um, it was a support forum as much as anything else. It wasn't, there wasn't much community aspect to it. There were obviously people on the elite side that would come on and they would sort of talk between themselves. And it was quite um, fe- relatively sparse, though. But for a lot of the other games, as it sort of is now, it was more to answer questions and for people to be able to give us support requests that we could get back to them. So as soon as the Kickstarter went live and it just exploded, that's when it became, you know, a lot more necessary to hire some more moderators because we only had one at that stage to expand the forums, get lots more sections and just sort of try and have a much more community involvement so that 
it was a good place to be. And also to sort of clamp down on, you know, uh, spam bots and things like that and people that were potentially going to make it a much worse sort of place for everyone else. I think we've done quite a good job anyway. It's uh, compared to most other game forums, it's, uh, I think it's a very sort of, it's a much nicer forum to be on. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think to be fair, there's, there's actually the, you know, I mean, we all kind of recognize there's a really good spirit to the, uh, to the forums as, as things are, because at the end of the day, we're, we're kind of as much a, a vehicle of, of that community spirit and a, and a, a response to that community spirit in that, um, you know, we have, we have listeners from there and, and we've got, you know, sort of interaction with them. And, and there is an awful lot of good feeling for not just for the game, but also for everything associated with it. So I, I think that general sense of posi- uh, positivity comes from, as well as the fact that there are nice people around there, there is also there is a, a general sense of that opinion means something and opinion counts. Mm. And I think, you know, the, the longer that's maintained between Frontier and, uh, and its fans, then, um, you know, I think, I think that's always going to, to keep a good relationship. And hopefully, you know, when the game comes out, um, the community will probably grow even more. We'll be able to sort of be able to start doing more stuff as well on the forums. And uh, it should become even better, I think. I think gradually it will just get even bigger and even better. Aside from the forums, you've obviously been doing the, you know, the regular newsletter to keep people up to date on what's going on. Uh, one of the questions that we were thinking about was, you know, are the developers happy to share their ideas? Or do you find that the developers are actually quite protective and quite secretive about their ideas until they think you know, they've actually got a finished product? Are they you know, quite protective of them? Uh, so there's kind of two philosophies to it when it comes to things like the newsletter. The first is that we could you know, put out absolutely everything that we produce, no matter how what state of approval or completion or how accurate it will be to what's in the final game. And whilst that would sort of be interesting, there's obviously a huge risk of miscommunication and um, to do with what direction the game's actually going to go in. And we think this could probably confu- create quite a confusing message, especially further down the line when it becomes a lot harder to keep track of exactly what we have and haven't shown. So for that reason, we tend to try and keep everything that we release as accurate as possible to what we think will be in the final game, uh, so we don't misrepresent it in any way. This can obviously cause frustration when compiling the newsletter because sometimes I, there's a lot of stuff that I've written and then by the time it comes to actually release the newsletter, it's already out of date. A new direction's been decided upon. So um, with how fast development like actually moves, though, at the moment, there's not really any better way to do it, I don't think. No, I'd, I'd agree. And, and I think I can kind of chime in a little bit on that with, with some of the concept writing I've done. You know, start, you, you kind of have to, you can't have a, a, a sort of a, a preciousness about anything you're doing, can you really? Because at the end of the day, if stuff's going to move and it's going to change, it's, it's obviously for the betterment of, of what the eventual thing will be. And, um, you know, I've written stuff that, that has been submitted in and then two weeks later it's come back and gone, yeah, no, actually we need to use this, which, you know, I'm entirely happy with. And I guess, you know, you have those, but you, you, you do, you have those moments of, ah, I've, I've just, you know, spent 20 minutes on that or whatever it was. Um, but, you know, you, you can't hold on to those because, you know, it's, it's got to it's be as good as it can be, hasn't it? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, like I said, whilst it would be cool if every single thing we released um, or that we you know, worked on everything the artist worked on, we could show you, it would just become extremely confusing where people are like, well, I saw a picture of the, um, you know, the anaconda that looks like this, but then you're showing me another image that looks like this. What one is it? And that would happen where, especially when newcomers started to like, learn about the game and come into it, they might see one picture or something and be like, well, that's not what I remember it looking like when I heard about the game. Um, so the best thing to do is like, really try and make sure that everything we release is as accurate to what we want it to be as we can possibly make it. But you talked there about the, you know, the speed of development and how things are, you know, are moving through very, very quickly. 
one of the things that people have commented on is the fact that you're actually trying to do something quite bold, uh, given the time frame you've set yourself in terms of it's it's a year before launch. Um, how are things progressing? I mean, is there a, an overall sort of time plan on the wall that you're ticking things off? Everything is everything going to schedule at the moment, or is there a bit of stress in the offices that things are slipping behind, or are you on track? There's, I mean, there's not a time schedule on the wall, but of course there is. Uh, there's milestones and things like that that we tried to hit. Uh, everything's still going well so far. Obviously, it is quite a s- small time schedule, but now that we're we've got more and more people on the project, it's sort of getting to the point where we are just really into our stride now. So everyone's just sort of getting on. They know what they need to do. They're just getting on with it and just working hard to make sure that we uh, get something out um, as, as quickly as possible, really. Actually, I'm not sure if you can comment on the grumbles on the uh, forum around the uh, the merchandise that's come out, specifically the T-shirt with the, the wonderfully subtle logo on it or the uh, the coffee mugs and that sort of thing. Yeah, no, sure. I, I'm, I'm happy to comment on this. I mean, I think the main... Um, sort of criticism we got wasn't to do with the quality of them it was more to do with the actual design so you know the massive logo uh the fact that a lot of people didn't realize the mugs would be white and i suppose um whilst we didn't make any promises for what the mug or the t-shirts were going to look like it was definitely our responsibility to communicate that early on so that we could have listened to the feedback from the community on it and um changed it before we actually started shipping stuff out so that's definitely a that's an oversight on our part and it's regrettable that a lot of people were unhappy with the uh, design of the mugs and the T-shirts. And obviously, there's not too much we can do about it for this round, but it's definitely something that we can like learn from and try to do better with in the future. There's more mugs and more T-shirts that will be sent out later on in the year as well. So hopefully, it's something that we can just sort of learn from and do better at next time. The final question I've got for you is, uh, again, around sort of the, the rewards of merchandise and just the latest on the concept art, signed prints, and when they will be shipped out. So the concept arts, not just the signed ones, are going to be delayed for another week or two, mainly because we received our consignment to start for us to sign, and we were unhappy with what the printers had produced. So we've actually told them to reprint them and do a better job. So actually anyone who's received their concept art will be receiving another one which should be better quality. And that does obviously mean that the signed ones will be delayed for a little bit, but hopefully when you actually get them, they'll look a lot better than uh, what they would have done if we'd uh, continued with the ones that we already have. Perfect. just means I have to wait a little bit longer before I put my frame up on the wall above my computer. Yeah. Sort of picked out and <laughs> you repainted. know you know we had this we had this whole discussion about john polishing his cobra so in in game in game john is you know sort of very proud of his ship out of game foz is completely polishing his mug and <laughs> hey look i make no bones about the fact that i'm an elite fanboy if i wasn't an elite fanboy i wouldn't be doing this so no i can't wait to get my sign print i really can't i'm really looking forward to it uh which one did you choose Oh, I see. I chose um, the one where they're fighting, and also the um, the sort of the atmospheric one with the space station in the off to the side with the ship oh, okay. approaching it. I was very surprised uh, people didn't choose the because um, obviously they were put up to community vote. I was surprised people didn't choose. It was called Silent Station. It was like quite dark and um, dark green and black, and it was like um, a ship sort of uh, landing at a station, sort of vertically. I was surprised that didn't get chosen uh, to go through actually, because if I had. Uh, bought one that's the one i would have gone for i think that's my favorite bit of the concept art yeah i think that's the one we've actually used as the uh, as the image for our conclave as well because we were trying to get the idea that it was a, a ship uh, secretly parking at a 
yeah, at a uh, space station stroke temple stroke mm. secret meeting place, which I must admit, I love that. But uh, yeah. I think it possibly didn't make it because uh, the fanboys were looking for something a little bit more elite something they could point to and say, this is elite, this is the game that I'm going to see yeah, coming they, through. I suppose so, yeah. Yeah, they love their slutty Cobra, don't they? <laughs> Let's face it. We we have actually we have a a, you know, a a thing that you know there is one particular image of the cobra that has been cut out and put into more fan based pictures than any other and of course you know that 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 is now known as the slutty cobra. I don't know if we've even actually announced the cobra is going to be in the game yet, have we? and a hundred people turn off in protest (laughs) and there you go so your inbox has now suddenly gone up by 500 we we, we need to get the game out in March but unfortunately we're going to have to reduce some features one of them will be the Cobra Mark (laughs) 3 that'd be an an interesting one priceless okay well we'll leave that there and uh, move on to the writers forum Attention, attention, second technician, Forrester to the arena, second technician to the arena, the ringside vending machine is broken. the season the live legionnaires have been having who knew they had this sort of game in them and what a time to show some form against the league leaders the unbeaten rigward rattlers both teams are playing at a frantic pace not flail it's screaming around the arena yeah, okay. that's fine. game from both teams have been by the police with their zoji uniform bound now the addition of protein spice to flail this season have already caused some interesting problems for the zone defenders. Barry passed to Brooks, four rows from the field. The defense are closing in like vipers, but he pulls a Zetsman, and now he's clear. Through, surely this be the decider. He shifts. Whoa! That's wide. That's heading straight for the crowd. Attention, attention, medical team to the arena. Medical team to the arena. Alan, as I ask you every week, uh, what's going on in the writers' forum, mate? Um, mostly writing. Uh, we're, we're into general questions about sort of technical elements, talking a little bit about um, how people move around spaceships at the moment, which uh, is all very interesting, uh, and trying to, you know, to sort of cope with the idea of zero gravity and what have you. Other than that, um, some of the other things that are actually going on outside of that is, uh, you recall I've um, sort of talked a bit before about some of the concept um, guide stuff that uh, that we've submitted so that you know, Michael and, and some of the others can take a look through and mull over which ideas and which other bits they want to use or don't want to use. I, I don't know if Ashley sort of listened to, to last week's, but I was, I was quite touched by the fact that um, some of the, the corporation names Listed on the um, uh, on the, the the freighters and the the different designs and models. Or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I was I was I thought that was that was awesome because of course Zorgan Peterson, um, you know Zorgan Peterson's previous 
sort of knowledge in the elite universe was that they produced the Fertilance, which um, a lot of people are quite keen to see a comeback of the Fertilance. But uh, but yeah, so that was that was quite nice. But some of the stuff we've been doing this week, Dave Hughes and I have just submitted a little bit more detail on some of the old worlds that are going to feature in the game. So we're we're trying to um, you know we've we've written a load of sort of concept uh, information which we've put back through to. To Michael and uh, and to David and to John and to Andrew. Andrew's just come back from holiday, so um, uh, we've we've noticed that because uh, suddenly uh, everything is being mulled over with a fine tooth comb. Even though you know Michael obviously mulls over everything with a fine tooth comb too, uh, and so does David. But uh, but Andrew tends to to sort of email a little bit more regularly. So welcome back, Andrew, and it's uh, it's been great because uh, we've missed you. So yeah, so the, um, the 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 old world stuff has gone in. We're currently debating a few bits and pieces with regards to how some of those old worlds are going to appear in the new game, which, um, which I thought was, you know, was interesting. Alan, just describe what you mean by old worlds, these old planets that were featured in the original. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're talking about Lave. We're talking about Deso. We're talking about, uh, Rita Quat. We're talking about Leasty. uh, those kind of, you know, that, that old region. Um, cause of course it was the region that you started out in, in elite and it was ported directly into frontier, and frontier first encounters as a as a set region, you know. So the the zone was exactly the same um, through uh, the other two games. And obviously, there is there's an intention for some of those old worlds, maybe all of them, I, I don't know, but some of them to feature in the new game. And um, so we're we're trying to give them a bit of a backstory, as it were, because alongside some of the key worlds in the Empire and the Federation, you know, they are places that that people have a bit of an affiliation with. So you know, trying to to flesh out what kind of happened on uh, on these different places just a quick question for you alan you kind of glossed over very quickly i noticed the uh, zero gravity stuff did the magnetic boots make it in or not yeah <laughs> <laughs> can i say that ashley am i allowed to say that i have no idea you have to if you, if you, i'm sure when when uh, michael listens to it he'll let me know <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. Mag boots are the okay. Well, do us a favour then, Alan. First of all, go yeah, and then go no, <laughs> <laughs> and then Michael can pick which one. <laughs> How about I go ta da? <laughs> um, yeah, no, uh, no. Mag boots are uh, magnetic boots are in. Um, there's been a bit of discussion about the different properties of magnetic boots and how they would work. In, in modern spaceships, and obviously there is a, you know, there is an intention, and I think Michael's got this quite clearly in mind, to have the, you know, the elite universe, the elite dangerous universe, needs to be gritty, and needs to be sort of mechanical and have that kind of sort of um, uh, rough feel to to what's there, and I think magnetic boots, as opposed to perhaps a a more polished Star Trek like solution. Um, you know, is is part of that that sort of industrial element of um, uh, of what people are, are sort of looking at. Now, you know, the implementation and the and the way in which that works in the fiction is a bit tricky because, of course, you know, having a scene in a cockpit between two people is is quite <laughs> quite difficult to manage um, in zero g. But you know, it's a challenge, and you know, and I've having gone through my writing. I mean, you know, I've said I'm I'm now sort of well into chapter seven. In chapter two, I've got a scene between two people in a cockpit, and uh, that's quite tough because I've looked at implementing zero g in one particular way, and obviously, 
the implementation, you know, is gonna is gonna evolve and change based on on what we're doing and and how everybody sort of pans it out. So, you know, already the scene I wrote, you know, maybe three four months ago initially, and then have, have revisited the other day. It's already slightly out of date in terms of the technology that's there. So, gonna have to have a think about it, and I'm sure all the other writers are too. Well, quick question then, um, Mr. Hadfield, who was in space quite recently has produced a lot of videos about you know the effects of zero g has that been a help to you guys um i might watch them next week oh. <laughs> <laughs> and there's john trying to get all topical on you well i just thought it would be something that the writers would be very interested to see because it's it's about realism and you know if 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 we want to be gritty in you know the elite universe, then we you know should be looking at stuff like that. Absolutely, no. I mean, um, I actually, and again, uh, if Michael's listening, I'm sure he will uh, he will think about this. I actually, one of the things that's in the the timeline currently is one of the things I put in was something related to the white warp drive. So, you know, because it was current and it was topical, I thought that actually having something current and topical in the initial uh, areas of the timeline before you know because it doesn't matter it doesn't matter to the current game in any way shape or form but having something that likens us to what is going on in the you know in this decade as opposed to you know looking at the frontier manual and seeing what they thought was going to be going on in this decade i think is important so so yeah no i, I put a i put a clear mention of the white warp drive into um into the two, 2010s as it were Excellent. And for all those people wondering what the heck a white warp drive is, Google is your friend. We're quite established now in terms of the, the Writers Forum. Have we got everybody there? Have we got a full complement? Or have we still got some no-shows, Alan? Well, the thing is, is that you never know who's reading things. You can always tell who's posting and being part of the community, and also who's posted on the welcome thread and said, hello, this is who I am. But you never know who's reading things. And at the same time, as has clearly been mentioned in other places... Some writers have different ways of working. You know, some some want to update regularly. Some don't want to update regularly. I can only sort of talk about the people and the and the you know the stuff that I've been able to to talk to and and consult with and and sort of help out in different ways. Some are still not there, but we're still ten months away from March. Okay, continuing on from the feature from last week, we have the writers Q and A. Attention, attention. Communication channels open. This is Darren Gray from Tales from the Frontier, the elite anthology of short stories. Hi, this is John Harper from the novel Anti of the Wheel. Hi, my name is Tim Gader. I'm one of the anthology writers. Hi, Marco Susimatsa from the Tales from the Frontier elite anthology team. Hey everybody, it's Lisa Wolf from Tales from the Frontier here. Hello, Dave Hughes here from Elite Encounters. Do you think there is a risk of losing your own voice or unique story given the level of collaboration on this project? First of all, although we use a common forum, we don't have to share our ideas. None of us have really shared any ideas with each other. More sort of loose concepts like what planetary landing involves, what hyperspace drives are, a lot of the same stuff that goes to the TDF. But our actual plots and our overall character arcs and story arcs and so on, I think are all seen very personal. So I don't think there's going to be a lot of overlap in that at all. I think every one of the stories is going to be unique 
um, and everyone, even the short stories, I think are going to be fairly unique, if not completely unique, because I think everyone's got the same sort of loan working process. All all they're really sharing the information for is for um, collaboration. And um, I know that as far as the the collaborative stuff in Elite Encounters, like the, the thousand word stories and the seven hundred and fifty word stories are concerned, the those authors aren't talking to each other. They're um, submitting their stories to me, then I'll have a go through just make sure they're okay for for the book and that I can put them in a logical place in the book and then Michael Brooks has final say on the actual content themselves so they should be quite unique Marco? Uh, no, we all work separately none of us have actually shared our story ideas or synopsis with each other uh, on the common writers forum all that we share there are our questions about different issues about the elite universe technology, hyperdrives, and all such stuff. It's a little bit different on the Tales from the Frontier Writers Forum, where all of us are collaborating on our 15 stories. There, we, some of us have shared our synopsis with each other, and some of us have revealed our basic ideas for our stories with each other. But we are not writing our stories together. We are working on them separately, writing them out. And for example, in my case, I wrote my story during the Kickstarter in December and now I'm working on draft 2, changing some things based on the new information revealed by Frontier. And I haven't shared my story with the uh, anthology team yet. I plan to do so only after I've, I've finished the second draft. Since the story is basically done at that point, the feedback will mostly involve some last minute changes to some details or perhaps some cuts or additions that the story needs. It won't affect the uh, feeling of the story, the basic premise or how I tell the story or how I want to tell it. I don't think there's any danger of the collaboration to um, change our stories or make them too similar with each other. They will remain separate stories. We'll all have our own voices, our own stories to tell. For me, the collusion is a plus, not a detraction, from my novel and my voice. First off, I think a writer's voice is something you don't immediately have. It's something that's very hard-earned. Think of a music band. They start off emulating those they admire. Um, for example, my favourite band, Goldfinger. Their first album had very distinct bad religion flavours to it. Though, of course, it was my favourite. By their own admission, it wasn't until their fifth album that they thought they had finally nailed their own sound. So I think it's the same for a writer. It takes many hundreds of thousands of words, maybe even millions of words, to find that particular voice, and you're not going to lose that quickly through some fact-swapping process. Back to the collusion. I think it's fantastic. My novel is going to be a rollicking adventure, but without that collusion, that's all it is. My adding some of my novel elements to the game, and by sharing some of my details with other writers, by having some of my characters pop up in other stories, you'll really get the feeling that this isn't a disparate group of stories, but actually one big tapestry of fiction. It'll make the Elite Dangerous Universe feel that much larger, that much richer, and add to everyone's enjoyment. At least that's my story anyway, and I'm sticking to it. Darren? Hell no. There's really no chance of that whatsoever. We're all approaching very different things. Some of us are set in different times. A lot of us are set in different parts of the Frontier universe. This is a big universe. As friendly as we may look, we do have disagreements on the Writers' Forum about writing style, about 
the levels of technology and how to have exposition of that technology. Uh, and there's a lot of different disagreements over that. And generally, these disagreements are fine because our stories are set in different places and with different characters and different things going on. Uh, we have a vast variety of life on Earth with just 7 billion people. In the future, with hundreds of billions spread across the stars, we're also going to have a much richer variety of things going on. And it's perfectly fine to have some variety like this in the novels. As long as we all tie back with how the game will be, we're not contradicting each other in any terrible way, this is all fine. So definitely not the same stories. You know, we're really all approaching this from our own personal angles. And though we're, we're tying up to ensure some consistency, the stories themselves are all very individual. Tim? In terms of maintaining our own voice and writing style and also storylines, I don't think there's much issue there. We'll all be working on our stories individually and also we'll just check in every now and then, hand over a draft and everyone will probably check it, do a bit of proofreading and then we'll go on to write the next draft. So that's the kind of process that we're going through. So I think everyone's individual voice will be maintained and naturally all writers will have their own unique style of writing and I think these different styles will shine through. We'll also be making sure that each storyline is maintained and that we don't repeat the same storyline over and over again but even at this early stage it's very clear that all the writers have got very different ideas so there's no real danger of any stories being repeated or being too samey. And finally, Lisa? Really the point of the collaboration is just to make sure that we are all writing in a uh, in the same universe, in a, this, a coherent, consistent universe. Uh, maybe as an example, uh, if we've got some writers writing in modern day London, so let's assume no magic, no superheroes. By removing those two elements you've immediately obviously restricted the stories. But in a city like London, there are so many stories you can still tell. Um, you can have the gritty police drama, romance, um, comedy, uh, political drama. They're all using London as the backdrop. So they're all set in the same place. They can even use exactly the same locations. But they will all feel very different. The crime drama will be perhaps dark, uh, tension, possibly moments of excitement, whereas the slapstick will have um, humorous violence, jokes, puns if you're that sick, and they will end up with very, very different stories, very, very different feelings, and again, and also the writers will bring their own voice to the stories, which will make them that bit different again. In the same way, um, we're writing in a fictional universe that Frontier has provided, the Elite Dangerous Universe, and we're restricted, obviously, to the universe that they've given us. The laws of physics we write about have to be the laws of physics that they have uh, defined. The technology levels are what they've defined, the level of medicine, uh, the political factions, all those sort of things are things that we have to work within. But within that entire universe, we have so many stories that we can tell. Again, you can have the gritty drama, uh, you know, the seedy underbelly of the universe, uh, you can have the slapstick comedy, you can have the bounty hunting, you can have the political drama, you can have the feel-good um, coming-of-age type stories. It's The restriction really just is on some of the mechanisms you use in the story. It's not a restriction on the story itself. Uh, for example, um, 
we want to make sure that one pilot isn't boasting about how fast his ship can go, how many times light speed his ship can go, while in another story another pilot is making a huge point about how ships cannot go faster than light speed without something like hyperspace. If you have them both there, then the universe isn't consistent. There's this jarring inconsistency between the two and it's going to throw people out of the universe. So really, that's what the collaboration's all about. Um, to make sure that we don't have any huge clangers like that in there. Thank you, Commanders. Communication channels closed. Got a couple of listener questions coming, which we'll just uh, fly through. Uh, this one from Psycho Cow. Guys, how much of your podcast recording actually gets ditched? I think that the person to answer that one has to be John, seeing as he does most of the editing. Yes, I've, I've analysed this. It's roughly half of it. <laughs> oh, God. Um, but don't feel that you're missing out because half of it is us talking crap, just being like mates, you know, how are you, what have you been up to, laughing, joking before, and then the laughing and joking after the recording, and then all of those awkward minutes where we go to the toilet during. Um, people aren't missing out on anything. No, and, and if they are, then they can obviously tune into the next episode of Station Watch, which... Um we will we will feature with all of those you know extra things of what we do. Actually, it's funny you mentioned Station Watch. I just want to pick up some people on this. Okay, when Alan did a recording of me throwing up, okay, <laughs> it was in bad taste, and yet apparently last week somebody threw up in a Remlock mask, and it was pure genius. <laughs> I don't get it. Uh, it's all about uh, yeah, it's all about comedic timing, John. Yep, the other question for Psychocam is what mics we're all using to record now. I've got a wireless Logitech headset, which is the 930, which is their gaming headset, which I use. Alan? No idea. <laughs> At all? No, it came with, came with Dragon. Okay, very so nice. you're using a, a, a dictaphone microphone. Yeah, and basically. yeah it's, very, okay. it's, it's very nice. came with Dragon. It's got a furry end. Right, moving on. Oh, Ashley, God. what are you using, sir? I'm using a gaming headset as well. I use a Siberia... Steel Series Siberia V2. It's a very good headset. It's really comfortable. It's not furry, but it's very cool looking, despite the fact that it's not furry. John, what are you using? I use a, a Logitech wired USB headset, which is not comfortable at all. It, next one's not really so much of a question. It's actually, we have a big announcement on uh, Lave Radio. Uh, something that's been on the, the forums for a week, uh, but we're actually announcing uh, our first ever LaveCon. So LaveCon 2013 is going to be held at the Thistle Hotel in Cheltenham Spa, and that's going to be on June the 29th. So all the guys from the radio show are going to be there. Uh, there's going to be a few of the, the writers who are writing licensed fiction are going to come. It's an open invitation. Uh, we've got tickets. If you go to laveradio.com, there'll be a link on there as to how you get tickets. At the moment, it's completely free. What we'll do is we'll we do a live recording there at LaveCon, uh, but it's more of an opportunity to meet up with fellow elite fans talk about the game development and yeah, have a drink and have some food as well so i say laveradio.com and click on the lavecon 2013 icon and finally in the community corner just a shout out for john harper's latest podcast commander's log episode five um this has got uh, quite a special guest appearance on it so if you want to listen to that you can head over to www.andhearthewheel.co.nz and lastly, we just go on to the feedbacks. iTunes reviews this week. We've got one coming in from Amiga Cook. Escape Velocity has had a review from Zimrich. Ashley, what's the best way of them getting in touch with you? By email, uh, abarley 
at frontier.co.uk or by Twitter at Ashley underscore Barley. Uh, and what sort of things do you want to receive, Ashley? Well, you, you can't send alcohol through the internet, so... Um, <laughs> Underwear's uh, out as well. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Good wishes. Uh, <laughs> anything, I mean, if you've got any inquiries or anything like that, any questions, I'll do my best to answer them. Um, and I, I always try and get back to everyone that emails me or contacts me by Twitter. So if you've got any questions, feel free to get in contact. Fantastic. And of course, you can contact the show at info at laveradio.com, on Twitter at laveradio, on Facebook, just search for laveradio. Or if you want to record a message, you can send that to us at the email address and we'll play it on the next episode. Okay, that's going to do it for this week's show. A big thank you to Ashley Barley for appearing on the show. Playing us out this week, it's Alan Stroud and Fuel Scooping Into Danger. <laughs>